Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your co-host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, with, excuse me, I said co-host. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover Howard. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Bernice. Well, I'm doing just fine. Everyone, Patricia is going to monitor the chat room. And summarize your comments. So I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Well, my guest tonight is Dr. David B. Dumas. David was born in Galveston, Texas, and holds a Ph.D. in geophysics, an amateur historian and photographer who has been photographing for the last 30 years. Now, photographing Civil War sites enabled David to become more knowledgeable about U.S. history by learning much, much, much more than, than could be found in any textbook. Many of these areas are located on back roads and not found on any of the model highway maps. David Dumas is the author of Stills Bayou Expedition, a driving tour, Major General U.S. Grant's March in Louisiana, a driving tour, Yazoo Pass Expedition, a driving tour, and most recently, the original Vicksburg National Military Park and Vicinity. So let me give a warm welcome to David B. Dumas to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, David. Welcome, Bernice. Glad to uh, talk to you. Well, I'm glad to have you on the show and just looking forward to you sharing with us all of what you have done with these various books. So let's begin with your beginning. 
what motivated you to start uh, writing books on Civil War military sites? Well, let me kind of start off and tell you how I got interested in the Civil War first. Uh, back in the early 1980s, I became a football official in the Southwestern Athletic Conference. And I had a game in Jackson, Mississippi, and I was trying to find the best way to get to Jackson. One way was to leave Houston, take Interstate 20 to Interstate 55, just east of Baton Rouge, and go into Jackson. Another way was to take US 59 out of Houston and hit Interstate 20 just west of Shreveport, then cut across to Jackson. I decided to take that way because I went through Vicksburg, and I had a high school classmate that was an engineer with the Army Corps engineers that was stationed in Vicksburg. So when I left, left that Friday morning, stopped off and saw my friend in Vicksburg, went on to Jackson and did my game Saturday. And on the way back, I stopped off at the park in Vicksburg. And as I drove around, I was just fascinated with the place. I just fell in love with the park. And on the way out, I decided to stop by the visitor center and pick up some information concerning the park and also the Vicksburg campaign. And once I started reading, I couldn't stop. I figured I had to go and see everything that they talked about. And so I was going back for about two, twice a year since the early 1980s, photographs and stuff in the park. But as my knowledge increased about the campaign, it started to venture out away from the park. Then finding a lot of websites that dealt with the Civil War, I found out there were so many places that I haven't seen and it was my goal to try to see as much as possible and photograph as much as possible. Uh, doing this, I've come to find out that there were a lot of places that I did not know were there, and it took me quite a while to find all these places. And I figured there were other people that were just like me that wanted to find these places. So that's when I started writing these tour guides on how to get from place to place. And so, like you mentioned earlier, there were three tour guides uh, U.S. Grants March in Louisiana, the Steel Bayou Expedition, the Yazoo Pass Expedition, and I've just completed my fourth tour guide of Benjamin Grissom's raid, probably the most successful raid by the Union by the Union during the entire war. So, those things, along with the book you mentioned about the original Vicksburg National Military Park in vicinity, is what I have. Now, the reason why the title is the original Vicksburg National Military Park is this is the way the park was when it was founded. Now, if you go to Vicksburg, the park has been reduced by two-thirds of the original size, and a lot of people don't know that. But what my book contains is all the monuments and markers that were ever inside the original park. Wow. Well, I want you, before we even talk about all the monuments and markers, kind of take us back, because one of the things that I did mention was that you became more knowledgeable about U.S. history as you started exploring the park. So tell us about, just give us an overview of the military action that took place in Pittsburgh, just so everybody's on the same page. Okay, when the war broke out, the Union strategy was to put a naval blockade around the southern states, around the Atlantic Ocean and all in the Gulf of Mexico, and the next was to get control of the Mississippi River. When the war broke out, President Lincoln 
was talking to a group of people, and he said, see what a lot of land these fellows hold, of which Vicksburg is the key. The war can never be brought to close until that key is in our pocket. Jeb Davis, the president of the Confederacy, said, Vicksburg is the nail that holds the two parts of the Confederacy together. So both commanders-in-chief saw the significance of Vicksburg. And the Mississippi River at that time was the most important feature for economics on the continent because you had a lot of people in the Northwest, and the way they got their goods out to foreign ports was down the Mississippi River. So getting control of the river was vital for the Union. Now, Grant had made several attempts starting in December of 1862 to try to capture Vicksburg, and each one of these attempts failed. So finally, in the end of March 1863, Grant decided to march down the Louisiana side of the Mississippi River. And somewhere below Vicksburg, come across and attack Vicksburg from the east. Grant did that, and the first major battle was fought on May the 1st, 1863. It finally came to Vicksburg on May the 18th. 1863. In the meantime, they fought five battles during that time. When Grant got to Vicksburg, he did an all-out assault on the city on May the 19th, which failed. Again, he tried on May the 22nd, and also failed. This led to a 47-day siege of the city itself, and Vicksburg finally surrendered on July the 4th, 1863. And this occurred at the same time the Confederate forces were defeated at Gettysburg on July the 3rd, 1863. So combining these two swung the war in the Union's favor. What a fascinating history. And, you know, just listening to you is something that people need to truly understand about Vicksburg. Well, let's talk a little bit now about the park. So when was this park first conceived and and implemented? Since we obviously know the war is over now, so what's going on? Okay, what happened? First, the veterans around Gettysburg got together and started putting memorials up and just dedicating the ground that they fought on. And they did the same thing at Chickamauga. Now, the veterans of Vicksburg, they saw what was going on in other parts of the country, so they decided to do the same thing for Vicksburg. And so in the 1890s, 1894, that's when stuff really got underway. And it wasn't until 1899 that Congress passed acts to establish the Vicksburg National Military Park. And, and so with that passage, how how law? I mean, what kind of acreage are we talking about? Okay, the acreage of the park is about. Let's see, I have it written down here. Kind of where I got it. It's over seventeen hundred acres. Okay. It's seventeen hundred seventeen hundred and twenty acres. Mhm. So the park is pretty good size. When they first started, they had to get they had to acquire uh, different parcels of land piece by piece. And what Congress stipulated that the parcels they could get had to follow Confederate and Union lines. 
And so as they went along by piece by piece by piece, they finally got the park its entirety. They covered all the way, oh, pretty good 30-some miles of roadway. Okay, and so after acquiring this land and and looking at the various stipulations as far as the parks, then when was the, the very first monument actually dedicated in the park? And what was the first, the first monument, for that matter? The first monument came from the state of Massachusetts in 1903. That was the first one put in. The largest monument in the park is the Illinois State Memorial. It's, it's modeled after the Pantheon. And it has a list, it has the name of all the soldiers from Illinois that participated in the Vicksburg campaign. <clears throat> Now, it's up to the states. Now, this is part of the act of Congress when the park was organized. It's up to the states themselves to put the markers in. It's not the responsibility of the federal government to place markers in the park. So each state came up with their own unique design for their markers. And I've been there so many times, I can just look at the shape of a marker and tell you from what state it belongs to. And you have various types of markers in the park. You got state memorials. And not all states put up memorials in the park. Many of the northern states did it. Since the southern states, they lost the war. They weren't too eager to put up monuments in it. And besides that, mm-hmm. most of the southern states basically bankrupt after the war. They didn't have the money to hardly do anything. So the Union started placing markers in the park. And they sent delegations down to the park, and they started marking off everything that they did. If, Like May the 19th, I mentioned that earlier, that was the assault on Confederate lines. Every regiment went in and put their high water mark at that particular place. There are far more markers on the Union side than on the Confederate side. Again, one reason the Confederate states were pretty poor following the war, so they didn't put that many up. The next thing, since the Confederates were on the defense, they didn't move at all. They just maintained their position. But the Union forces were constantly maneuvering, manipulating, making attacks, and they ended up doing what was called digging approaches. An approach is nothing more than a trench that's dug from your line towards the enemy's line. And so there were like 12 approaches outside of Vicksburg. And each one of these are marked off with markers. So there are a lot of Union markers spread throughout the park. Now, what has happened in the park, one of the problems at the park is the type of soil it has is called loess. If you take rainwater, if rain hits it, it's like a hot knife going through butter. It will erode very, very easily. Mm-hmm. So the 19... 19- so in the 1930s, to prevent the erosion, what they did was they planted trees throughout the park. That stabilized the park, but on the other hand, you lost a sense of what happened there because the trees blocked the view. Yes. And there were, mm-hmm. there were a lot of markers inside those trees that you drive through today, you can't see them. You don't even know they're there. And this is what happened when I found this map of Vicksburg from the 1930s. It lists all the markers that were ever in the park, even the ones that are 
tucked away in every nook and cranny in the city. Now, the park we see today is about two-thirds the size of the original park. The original park enclosed Vicksburg. It circled Vicksburg completely from the north to the south. And as Vicksburg got to expand the city itself, it started encroaching on park boundaries. And so the park itself limited the city of Vicksburg from expanding. So what happened in the 1950s, the park relinquished some of their land to the city of Vicksburg, and it kind of was an exchange between the city and the park itself. The park gave something up to the uh, National Park Service in exchange for the right-of-way to go to this new land. Mm-hmm. And so, so like I said, I got to looking at this, and I finally realized there was a lot of the park I never even saw. I didn't even know it existed. So I kind of set out to say, let me see if I can go and locate all these monuments and marks. And like I said, I've been photographing that for over 20 years. And now I really set off in earnest to go to a lot of places that are not in the park in the city itself and try to photograph all these places. And this is, I think, one of the things you think about the book I have is that it mentions all these places that some of them are no longer in the park. Uh, they're in the city itself. Now, just because they're not in the park, doesn't mean that people can take them down. If you drive through Vicksburg, you'll see monuments in people's front yard, markers in people's front yards from the Civil War. You'll see, still see fortifications in people's yard, and those must stay. The people can't say, "Well, I don't want this in my yard. I'm gonna take it down." They can't do it. So, like I said, the thing about my book that's unique—it just takes you to all these places that are not even hardly listed in any of the literature you see today. And in doing this research, ran across a map from around 1910, the original Mm -hmm. layout of the park itself. And they had every trench, everything you could imagine that was ever in the park during the siege itself. And so I also included copies of those maps in the book. So now people can get a real good sense of what it was like during the time of the siege. Now, one of the things that I noticed in your book, and that's because you're saying some places are not even there or things have changed, is that you went and found old pictures of what the original site was like, and then you put in what the site is currently like. So how many of those sites did you actually identify and photograph and put in, in your book? Well, I went and looked at some of the sites. Uh, basically came out the uh, museum in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. I was just scanning the Internet, and all of a sudden I ran across some of these early pictures of the park itself. And I went back and found some of those places. Uh, it was just too many to include in the book itself. Mm-hmm. But basically, mm-hmm. all the earlier pictures I saw, you know, I I actually had pictures of them, but just trying to get it all printed up, I just tried to put some of the most pertinent places in the park and show what they looked like back then and what it looks like today. Right. So give us an idea of what types of markers what we see in, in the park, and, in fact, define what is a marker for that matter. 
basically there are three types of markers. You've got state memorial markers. These are big, huge monoliths almost. Then you have markers about different offices. Some are granitic markers. Some are full-size markers. Uh, each state have different types of markers, some different types of stone. Uh, then you have information panels. Now, markers are memorials. You basically can place them anywhere. But they try mm -hmm. to put all these memorials in the vicinity that these troops participated in. Now, you have an information panel that may describe this was the location of Battery F, 2nd Illinois Infantry. You cannot place those anywhere. You have to place those exactly where that battery was. Mm -hmm. Then you have, again, markers that describe the further advance of a particular regiment on May the 19th, May the 22nd. You can't move those around. So some of these things are descriptive. Some honor different regiments. Some honor different divisions. And like I said, most of the markers in the park are from the north. Uh, the Confederates have a few markers from different states. Uh, since they didn't have to move around like the Union forces did, they occupied the trenches. All the trenches are marked off with the different Confederate uh, units. Uh, again, like as I mentioned earlier, one of the problems that some of these markers had to get removed is that when they constructed Interstate 20, Interstate 20 went right through Vicksburg cut right through the park. Mm -hmm. And so you had to remove all these markers. Now, monuments got moved, and you can place those, again, like I said, anywhere. But information panels are big iron panels. You cannot put those anywhere. So most of these were taken up, and they haven't been storaged. Oh, okay, okay. Now, there's a question coming out of the chat. Did any of the Civil War reports that you reviewed for your book, did they mention information about the enslaved persons, uh, number, mode of people that resided on plantations that may have been near uh, where the park is right now? Uh, most of those, they mentioned a few of them, not many. Uh, some of the people that did own slaves in the area, they packed up and they left the vicinity because they knew what was going to happen. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the things that you can have is the last monument they put up was the United States Colored Troops, and that was located on Grant Avenue. Just about all of the United States Colored Troops fought on the Louisiana side of the Mississippi River. Matter of fact, mm -hmm. the second place where black troops saw combat was at Milligan's Bend on June 7, 1863. Uh, currently, most of that is under the Mississippi River. There's a historical marker uh, that's about a mile from the actual location. The actual location where it was is on private property. You can't get to it. Mm -hmm. But there's a historical marker that states, you know, this was the second place where uh, black troops actually saw combat during the war. But Union troops, and, and one note on this was following the siege of Vicksburg, after Vicksburg surrendered, uh, Vicksburg was garrisoned by at least 4,000 uh, United States colored troops. And most of these were ex-slaves in Mississippi. I mean, the shoe is now on the other foot. They were like the police force in the city of Vicksburg. 
Mhm. Okay, so we I mean you're you're bringing up some information that's that's very valuable. There's a question about you. And they want to yes. know did you was any member of your family uh in the Civil War? And for that matter, are you a veteran of of any of the military uh units? Uh I there was a guy by the name of Dumas and uh, he was around uh, Port Hudson. That was the first place where black troops actually saw combat, combat on May 27, 1863. I'm not, I don't know if I'm related to him or not. Am I a veteran? Yes, I am. I did. I was in the Navy. I came through the reserve program. I was on active duty between 1967 and through 69 in the Navy. Uh saw three tours on my ship off the coast of Vietnam, and I think I was probably on the last ship to get shot at off of North Vietnam. We were shot at about a week before Johnson passed the bombing hole. So, yes, I am a veteran. Okay. Well, David, we're going to take a quick break and come back, and there's a response. Thank you for your service, Dr. Dumas. So we're going to take a quick break and come right back. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Now, you have been listening to David Dumas share information on the pictorial overview of Civil War sites. Now, I would like you, David, do you have any information you'd like to share with us about the Vicksburg, uh, the National Military Park and vicinity, before we move into some of the other guides that you have put together? Okay. The the park itself, like I said, it's it's a good-sized park. It probably has more monuments than probably any park in the nation. Uh, along with the Vicksburg National Military Park, there is the Vicksburg National Cemetery. 
Uh, there are over 17,000 uh, soldiers buried in the Vicksburg National Cemetery. Uh, 40% of them are United States colored troops that are buried there. Uh, the unfortunate part about it, they've only been able to identify 4,000 of the 17,000 because you have to remember they didn't have the dollar tag system back in those days. Uh, I was there in February, and I, and I photographed the cemetery itself. Uh, you can go online and look for Vicksburg National Cemetery, and it gives you a history of the cemetery. There's also a map, and all the people that's interred, their their names are on the on the website. Now, for those who are interested in finding the black soldiers, all you have to do is look at the unit, and if you see USC, it stands for United States Colored. It could be United States Colored Troops, United States Colored Infantry. USCHA stands for United States Colored Heavy Artillery, or USCLA, United States Light Colored Light Artillery. And what was kind of interesting as I went through the cemetery, I saw this tombstone, and I looked on the front edge, the soldier's name, he was part of the United States Colored Troops. When I came back and passed by, there was something written on the back of that tombstone. And come to find out that was his wife. They're both buried in the same grave. Mm-hmm. So if you have mm-hmm. so if you have any relatives, you know, you can go online to the Vicksburg National Cemetery and see if you can find one of your ancestors. And each uh stone tombstone has a marker and if you look at the map you can get an idea where that uh tombstone of that person is buried. Right. So one of the other people, things You know, while you're mentioning looking at the tombstone and you looking at the other side of the tombstone, is that you may also discover that there's an invalid and a widow's pension available on that soldier. And that would be at the National Archives. So that's something, I mean, just what you're saying. Um, I want to ask you if you have your computer on to turn it down because we may be getting a little feedback. Uh, but I have a, a comment coming out of the chat room, and this is from Susan, and she says her great-grandfather, Private Isaac Blaker, served in the United States Colored Heavy Artillery, Company H, and he was stationed in Natchez, Mississippi, and and fought in Vidalia, Louisiana. Okay. Uh, just speaking of Natchez, I'll, I'll bring this up quite a bit. I'll bring this up for a minute. Uh, Natchez, Mississippi is the site of the second largest slave market in the West. There's a place called Forks of the Road. You can go online and Google it, and there's a lot of information pertaining to uh, Forks of the Road. Uh, Something else about the Vicksburg National Cemetery, there's a a ship called the USS Cairo. It's an ironclad, and it was the first ship ever sunk by a mine. Back in those days, they used to call them torpedoes. But they have it on display. They were able to recover it back in, I think, the 1970s. And so they have the uh, ship on display. And one of the interesting things about when I went to look at uh, the ship, and I went to the visitor center, and then I found a book on black sailors that were part of the Civil War. That's something you don't hear about too much, uh, black sailors that participated it was well over 30-some thousand black sailors that also participated in the war, but they were in the Navy. Which is great, which is wonderful. 
Now, because you went through, you used a lot of different sources. Before we move into your other books, can you tell us some of the sources, in addition to what you've already mentioned, that you used to help you organize this book and to to do your research? Most of the stuff I used to organize this uh, came came off online to uh, Vicksburg National Military Park. If you do a little research into it, and start clicking a bunch of buttons, you know, you can find a lot of information online about the park itself. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's what I did. I just clicked around. And then I went to different websites, and, you know, different people post photographs about different places. And I just look at them. I said, well, I can go ahead and find it. Now, one thing I do use quite a bit when going places is Google Earth. Uh, yes. I'll, before I, before I go anywhere, I check Google Earth out to get an idea. I don't I don't always trust GPS. There's some places I go to you can't get a reception. Mm-hmm. So I, so I have to know where I'm going, and I always put out a list. You know, go from point A to B, go ten miles here, make a right turn. Go and Google Earth is excellent for this stuff. And with with your book, if someone wanted to visit the park, give us an estimate of how much time they would need to see everything in the park. Oh, you can't do it in a day. Now, there's a driving tour that you can probably drive through the park in about an hour and a half. But if you want to look at it like I did, it's going to take you about a month to do it the way I do. Mm-hmm. If you do it every day, it's going to take about a while. About a month. Yeah. Yes. There's a lot There's a lot of road to cover. Like, and I can imagine what that experience is like, though, as you drive and you stop and you read uh, some of the information on the markers. It's, it's kind of taking you back to what happened back then. Like some of the places you can't see from the roadway, you have to park, get out your car. You may have to walk maybe a half a mile to get to some of these places. Mhm, mhm. And some of the some of the markers are in the city. You got to be careful. You don't go into somebody's front yard or trespass. You know where you're not supposed to be. And then yeah. anyway, anytime yeah. I go places, there's always a dog ready to chase me around. You, you walk through the city, so. <laughs> Oh boy. <laughs> okay, so do you have any information you want to tell us before we talk about Stills Bayou Expedition? Okay. That that kind of covers it for uh Vicksburg unless somebody has another question on it. Uh the Steel Bayou Expedition, what happened with that, uh Graham was trying to find different ways to get to Vicksburg. And the Steel Bayou Expedition was the brainchild of uh, Admiral Porter. And he figured if he could navigate the bottom, the bayous north of Vicksburg, he could come in from behind Vicksburg. Because at that time, Vicksburg was surrounded by swamps. The only real good way you could get to Vicksburg was from the east. You come in from the south, I don't know if you've ever been to that area. Uh, if you read Grant's memoirs, it said it's like a landscape turn on, on its edges. Like I mentioned earlier, the type of soil they have, it erodes very, very easily. And mm-hmm. so there's not too many ways you can come into Vicksburg from the south. 
So they were trying to come in from the north, and Admiral Porter figured if he could get his ironclads up north of the city and come down, it could surprise the Confederacy. But it just didn't work out because they got around a place called Rolling Forks, and they couldn't go any further because with those big ironclads, propellers got hung up in, in different ty- types of grasses that's growing in the water. And he almost lost his fleet. Uh, basically, what Porter did in order to get a message to General Sherman, he found a slave and gave him fifty dollars to take a message to Admiral Porter. I mean, to uh, General Sherman, and he did. And Sherman came to Porter's uh, rescue. But it's called a steel bayou expedition because it's a roundabout way to get to Vicksburg from the north. Uh, one of the other expeditions that preceded the Steel Bayou Expedition was Yazoo Pass Expedition. And that was further north. And, again, it was trying to use the bayous in Mississippi to get to Vicksburg. I don't know if you've ever been in Mississippi. Uh, there are quite a few bayous uh, in the state itself. Uh, yeah. If you ever, if you ever be there, you know, this is the first time I ever heard when they give the evening news, they'll tell you the Mississippi River is up by 10, by 5 feet. This bayou is up. This bayou is low. This river is up. I never heard so many river reports until I went to Mississippi. But those two mm-hmm. were, uh, is it Grant tried to get by Vicksburg uh, because he's tried several ways. Like I said, the first attempt started in December of 1862. He came down the Mississippi Central Railroad. And he was using the railroad to supply his army. And then on December 17, Earl Van Doren uh, destroyed his forward base at Holly Springs, and so he had to retreat. Grant also tried to dig different canals. Uh, there's one called the Grant Williamson Canal, just right across the river from Vicksburg. That didn't play out. The Lake Providence Canal, that didn't play out. Uh, the Duck, Duckworth Canal, that didn't play out. So his last attempt was to march down the uh, west side of the Mississippi River in Louisiana and cross below. And the reason what happened, the night before, or at least on April the 29th, the Navy tried to reduce uh, a place called Grand Gulf. It was another one of these strongholds uh, south of Vicksburg. And so they couldn't reduce it. And so Grant decided he would march further south across the Mississippi River. And that night, they brought in the grant a slave. And the one thing they always used for slaves was contraband. And a lot of books that say, well, uh, intelligent contraband was bought, brought in the grant. And he gave Grant some information about where to cross. Uh, grant had originally was going to go at least about 12 miles south of where he was, but he found out another place from the slave that it was a place called Broomsburg, which was only five miles ago below Grant's location. And he gave him a lot of valuable information that there was no Confederates in the area, no no cavalry, no anything. He had a good landing place and good roads that led to the interior. And just based on this guy's word, that's what Grant did. And the slaves, they got more information from slaves back in those days than they did from their own scouts because the maps in those days weren't that accurate. But the slaves were the main source of information for Union soldiers on the move. 
And it's interesting that there's a question coming out of the chat room uh, because you're talking about, you know, the role that the slaves played. But with your research, is is any of your research changing the way Civil War is being taught in K-12 to schools, information filtering into the schools like this? Yeah, one of the things, the Park Service, uh, the Big Great National Military Park has some good lectures on. And one word I found out about was a word called historiography. It's how stuff gets in the history books. You may take a history book or any kind of other literature and you read something as a reference to it. So you go back and say, let's see where this guy gets from. So you go check this book out there as a reference. You keep going back. Finally, there's a book with no reference to it. Mm-hmm. There's none at all. But this has been passed down from book to book, and people take it as fact. Now, there's a good book That's out true. called Confederate, Confederate and Neo-Confederate Reader. And the thing is, they said if you take a poll, they said half of the people believe that states' rights was the cause of the war. 25% will say slavery. Another 25 would say the election of Abraham Lincoln and terrorists. Well, the election of Abraham Lincoln is indirectly tied to slavery. But what happened was the South lost the war, but they won the propaganda war after the war, the shooting war was over with. When the war had ended, the South was trying to explain what happened and why it happened and try to find something positive in the all-encompassing defeat. And from this came what's known as the lost cause. And according to the lost cause, people, everything was the cause of the war except slavery. Slavery was the only thing that did cause the war. But all this was written after the war. If you go back and you look at stuff that was written before the war, that's what you have to do. And go back to what the Park Service called primary documents, the stuff mm-hmm. that was written at the time. If somebody made a speech, this was written down. Now, if you go back, most all, all the states that seceded from the Union had a convention on secession. South Carolina was the first, and they produced a document called Cause for Secession or Declaration of Secession. And they stated that slavery was the reason why they were leaving the Union. Mississippi followed. Again, at their convention, they produced a document, and that document they stated slavery was the reason why they were leaving the Union. And just about all of them that produced the documents stated that slavery was the reason. You go back and you look at a speech by Alexander Stevenson, vice president of the Confederacy, and he said slavery was the cornerstone of the Confederacy. Uh, you look at the Confederate Constitution that was copied almost word for word from the United States Constitution. They had, well, they had a one-term president for six years, but the main thing was the articles on slavery. It really expanded that. And the thing that was unique about it, even though they preached states' right, any new territory or states that was in the Confederacy did not have the right to ban slavery. So they didn't have that right to do it, but yet they preached it was states' rights. So mm-hmm. that was one of the things that I found out by really looking at this. First, it was just looking at battlefields. Then it just expanded to the cause of the war itself. Right. But people have to... The South got control of the propaganda war following it through textbooks. Uh, the northern state cities, they bought textbooks for that city. 
Well, in the South, the state bought the textbooks. So if you had one of those school districts in the North, they wanted 500 books and others wanted 1,000. Then the state of Mississippi wants 50,000. Then they're going to say, well, you're going to have to change this because this is not what happened. So they're going to go with the 50,000 textbook state. So that's how mm-hmm. a lot of stuff got into it and misinformation. Now, there is, if you ever Google John Singleton Mosby in his 1907 letter, if you ever saw Ken Burns' series on the Civil War, it's mentioned that nobody was mentioned more favorably and often than John Singleton Mosby in making uh, Lee's reports. Well, Mosby filed the war in 1907, wrote a letter to his friend, and this sums up the lost cause and everything in this little short letter. But Mosby says people at the convention was making it sound like the people in New England was slaveholders and the people in Virginia were the abolitionists that turned history around. He also goes on to state, you know, he fought for slavery because his ancestors had slaves. He said now he feels about slavery like, you know, a regular abolitionist. Now he knows it's wrong. But he also goes on to say the cause of the war was slavery. Just go back and look what South Carolina said when they seceded from the Union. I mean, that letter kind of sums up the lost cause and everything that was stated, you know, following the war. Now, I was looking at, listening to a guy named Gary Gallagher, and he had mentioned in James McPherson that they were graduate students back in the 1960s. And they noticed that a lot of stuff from the 60s kind of parallel what happened during Reconstruction. And so they started looking more at the Civil War history, come to find out, he said, what they were teaching us in school was wrong. He said slavery mm-hmm. was the fundamental issue behind the war. And so that kind of happened, you know, the parallel from the 1960s and Reconstruction that kind of had modern historians now, you know, reexamining the war. And so now modern historians are reexamining the war. Is there a change in what's happening in those textbooks and how history that's is being taught? That's the big question. A lot of times, you know, when you go places, it's a slow process because a lot of people still believe, you know, states' rights was the cause. But, you know, mm-hmm. it's up to the people that write the textbooks on how they're going to do it. Right. Uh, just about everywhere, everywhere I've gone, if blacks have participated in something, you're going to find something somewhere. Uh, a lot of places I travel in the visitor center, if blacks participate in that event, you'll find something there. There's no place you can't go, if, you know, that doesn't have anything if they didn't serve there. Uh, yeah. Let me just bring yeah. this up because I was speaking about that. Uh, about three years ago, I went down to South Texas. I was in the Photograph stuff from the U.S. Wall in Mexico. I just like going doing this stuff. And I went down to a park at Palo Alto, the first place of black, well, first uh, major encounter between U.S. and Mexican troops. And I wanted to see how many black soldiers participated in the war with Mexico. Didn't find anything. Now, I know everywhere I've been to, I find something that they were there. So I came back home and I'm trying to figure out what happened. So I got online and I found this article. Uh, about the war with Mexico. In 1821, it's not clear whether Congress or the War Department put out a regulation that no blacks would be allowed to serve in the Army, and that went to effect in 1822. 
So starting in 1822, no blacks were allowed to serve in the Army. As far as the Navy is concerned, the Navy always had problems getting people. But they put a quota that the enlisted population of blacks could not exceed 5% of the total population of the Navy. Now, what was interesting is, is that blacks could, be, could serve as laborers in the Army for a pay of $10 a month. And the ten dollars a month, if you keep up with Civil War stuff, went all the way on. If you saw the movie Glory, you'll see the pay of ten dollars a month where black soldiers didn't want to fight for ten, they should have been paid thirteen dollars a month. Mhm, mhm. So it's like you know, just going by looking at something else. I picked up something you know later on for, for the Civil War just by just going around looking. And there's so much to learn. I mean, there's just so much to gain. And, you know, just even reviewing what you have put together, I learn even more. And uh, I also spend a, time, a lot of time reading pension records, which are extremely valuable for genealogists and individuals who are trying to trace what happened to their ancestors. And, and you mentioned the need to look at primary sources. And I, yes. I, I, I simply want to reiterate, that is so important to look at those primary sources. And as you say, I mean, somebody won that propaganda war. <laughs> and, yep. and that propaganda war had a lot to do with how the Civil War has been portrayed in, in textbooks and how people have talked about the Civil War. But this is a new day. This is an opportunity uh, for us to definitely set the record straight. And so I want you to just tell everyone how they could get a hold of your uh, publications so that they can also uh, to read what you have done. And also tell us, are, are you getting these books in libraries and in the schools, and are you also going out and talking? Well, mainly... You can order them online. Uh, I would like to see most of them being placed in the national parks, uh, but I haven't seen any. You can easily just type in the name of the books that you've mentioned, the Steel Body Expedition, U.S. Grant March in Louisiana, Yazoo Pass Expedition, and the original Vicksburg National Military Park. And they're all online. You can just type it in and Google it and just order them online. Okay, and also, are you going around uh, talking? Do you give any presentations at the parks? Uh, I haven't. Uh, I may end up doing it because there's no national military military parks near me. The closest one is Vicksburg. Maybe that's why I concentrated on so much because it's the closest park to where I live. Mhm. Mhm. Okay, well, do you have any closing remarks before we close out the show tonight? Uh, yes, I would encourage everyone to go and visit one of the national military parks in your vicinity and learn as much as you can. Uh, a lot of times, like I told you earlier before the broadcast, I've driven through the state of Mississippi and it's been about 200 yards from some major Civil War activity and had no idea I was just that close. There's stuff everywhere. 
uh, I tell people to go out. If you really want to know, go online. You can find it. Uh, don't expect stuff to come and jump in your front in your lap to say, "Well, here we are." You have to go out there and look. And again, go to national parks. These people are healthy. Have any kind of questions? They'll answer the questions. And like I said, the National Park Service tell the employees. When you give a lecture, go to primary sources. Don't just pick up some book. Go to primary sources. And, again, you can get online and pick up all kinds of lectures from the parks about what happened during the war, and especially at that particular park. Okay. So, everyone, visit a national park and, and utilize the resources that you can find also online. And then write down the questions that you have so that when you're at that park and you meet up with staff, you can get your questions answered. So, David, I want to thank you so much for sharing your knowledge of Civil War sites with us tonight. And everyone else, please remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Sul Smith. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and beyond. You can check out my website, BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is geniebroots.com. Well, I look forward to all of you joining me next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover-Howard. Good night, everyone, and good night, David. Thank you so much for joining the show tonight. Okay, good night. Thanks for inviting me. Okay. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.